Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Wednesday, the 22nd of January, 2020. I'm Carmen LaBerge. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. So you've already uh, heard some of the uh, screeching headlines of the day. The impeachment hearing is underway in the Senate. The President of the United States is in Davos, Switzerland, at a World Economic Summit. Um, You are going to hear headlines today related to uh, an earthquake in the L.A. Basin. And you're going to hear headlines today in your own community related to um, people doing extraordinary evil to one another. And you're going to um, hear stories at work uh, of things that are happening in the lives of your coworkers, and you are going to hear from uh, people on both sides of you, you know, the generation above and the generation below, just about things that are difficult today and physical pain in uh, well, your your own physical pain is going to scream out to you from time to time as well today. So um, in the midst of the screaming headlines, how do we be, how do we live as people of peace? How do we live as people who um, expect the unexpected and anticipate miracles, knowing that with God, all things really are possible? So let me just encourage you this morning, no matter what the headlines are screaming, uh, life is going to go on. And it's going to go on eternally. And obviously this life that we're, you and I are now living um, is, is physical and it is temporal, but there is a life that is eternal. And you're living part of your eternal life right now. And so um, life is going to go on. If you're a Christian, life is going to go on. So uh, I go to work. I deal with the predictable and the unpredictable challenges of aging parents and raising kids and answering the calls of friends in need, just like you do. Uh, just like you, I am um, trying today to find time to do things for myself that I know I need to do, like uh, go work out, but which get pushed to what I sort of describe as the margin because, you know, frankly, just like you, I set the concerns of others ahead of myself. So I get it. I live there too. So here's a word of encouragement today. God's mercies are new every morning, including this morning. God is good and God is great and literally an ever-present help in whatever today's trouble happens to be. So today, let me offer you this, my friend. Um, Together, let's expect the unexpected. Let's anticipate miracles. Let's live in the confidence of the knowledge that God is good and that in him all things are possible. So what seems impossible to you today? Does it seem impossible that you'll ever reconcile with that friend who betrayed you? Does it seem impossible that you'll genuinely feel loved by your husband again? Does it seem impossible that you'll ever, I don't know, fit into those size 10 jeans? I don't know. Whatever seems impossible to you today, does it seem impossible that one day you'll actually get to retire? Does it seem impossible to imagine right now that one day you're going to live totally free of physical pain or worry or guilt or anxiety or doubt or depression? I have good news for you today. Today, all things are possible in and through Christ. 
All things. S. Yes. All things. Including the list of things that you're pretty sure is impossible. Your seemingly impossible thing. That thing is possible in Christ. Next up, I'm going to talk with Pastor Daryl Crouch. I love uh, to talk with Daryl about the church. You know, sometimes it's just good to just sit down with a pastor and just chat. So that's what we're doing. And Daryl and I are going to talk about the local church and uh, and why we're kind of tired of people poo-pooing the local church. So there you go. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Now, Pastor Daryl Crouch, he and I love to talk from time to time about things that are going on at the intersection of real life and the local church. Uh, Daryl, welcome back. Thanks, Carmen. It's great to be with you this morning. It's wonderful to have you with us this morning. You know, there's a lot of people listening right now who are just thinking to themselves, you know, I, I'd like to just sit down and talk to my pastor. Um, so let's start there. If um, if there's somebody who is in church and yet they don't really have um, a personal relationship with their own pastor. Give them, give them two ideas about how to reach out to their pastor to actually like connect on a personal level. Oh, wow. That's a great question. I think um, we're people. Uh, pastors are people, too. What? And so I think that's, yeah, what? it's amazing. What? I know we're, we're not superheroes. And um, Iron Man... Um, you know, that's just not who we are. So uh, people, just be a person to us. Be human. Treat us like humans and uh, say hello and know that uh, we may be distracted in a, in a moment, but that doesn't mean that we're unavailable or aloof. Uh, we uh, care about people and uh, we, we have common struggles like everybody else. And so um, an invitation to your home for a meal or a cup of coffee at the local coffee shop uh, any of that is a, a is a great gesture. A handwritten note, just like you love to get one from your pastor, your pastor probably loves to get one from you. And um, sometimes we only hear from people when there's needs and and criticisms um, or a combination of both. And and that's okay. That's that's why we're here. We're here to to help people with difficult things. And so that's just part of our role. But sometimes it's nice to hear from folks when you you know when they don't need anything. And uh, when they just are offering their prayer or their support or encouragement. Um, and so all, all of that really goes a long way. And, and again, just to uh, show a lot of grace and latitude, uh, we're all juggling a lot of things. So thank you. I know that, um, you know, I, that, that wasn't a question that I had teed up in advance. So thank you for um, sure. just being willing to share from your heart. I do think we forget that our pastors are at some level regular people. <laughs> at some level, I mean, oh, right? We for, for and, very, and at the at the basic level. I mean, we're <laughs> we're very human. We we deal with the same uh, struggles and um, challenges that everyone else faces. So let's talk about um, the local church. I think sometimes we talk about the church, and we uh, we are thinking about something other than a local expression of a body of believers gathered together. Um, you know, mutually seeking to know God better through his word and um, worship him in spirit and in truth and be in genuine fellowship with one another. Um, and then that collective work that we can do 
um, as a body of believers that we could never do just individually because there just isn't enough of any one of us. So I think that there are sometimes we think about the church in that way, um, and then there's other times we think about the church universal, and and we devalue the local church. Like we we think about the church as this cosmic, eternal reality, but we don't invest ourselves in a local congregation. And so let's just talk about this today. You have a new piece posted at Crosstide, which if you want to find um, where Daryl is um, speaking into the hearts of all of us and not just his local congregation, you can check it out at crosstide.org. You have a new piece there called No More Poo-Pooing the Local Church. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I, I appreciate that. I really do. And and I think um, a higher elevate or elevating the, the role and the then the nature of the church is really important. We don't do that without understanding our failures and faults. We've The church has not always gotten it right. We don't always do it the way we would want to do it or the way that would honor the Lord or even be true to our biblical uh, values. And so we, we have a long way to go. So I'm not discounting that at all. I, I do think that we we live in a culture today that really doesn't join much of anything. We, we're very isolated there's been much, many studies um, recently uh, and and in the in the recent past regarding our our isolation and loneliness. Uh, Robert Putman, uh, bowling alone, and and other works like that remind us that that we may be very connected te- with technology, but many of us don't know our neighbors. We don't join the Rotary Club. We we don't uh, we're not a part of civic organizations like we used to be, and so the the church is kind of in that in that bucket where people um, want to uh, observe the church and maybe want to attend a church event on a Sunday or uh, another day of the week. But uh, the idea of creating meaningful relationships uh, is either intimidating or we've uh, squeezed out all the margin in our lives for that. And uh, so the, the results of that are, I think, very traumatic, uh, frankly, in terms of our personal walk with Jesus, as well as our being salt and light in the in the greater cu- cu- culture. So I remember um, a conversation that I had with um, your colleague and my friend, Dan Darling, on this topic. Um, and he, he has this one line, and he may have stolen it from you, so if so, you can claim it. Um, but <laughs> you, can't, you can't love the groom, here we're talking about Jesus, and not love the bride. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's some real truth to that. Uh, Dan and I steal each other's stuff all the time. He's a great uh, friend and mentor and partner in this. So um, I appreciate that. And I think it it is true that we uh, claim some kind of personal relationship with Jesus, which our relationship, if we have one with Jesus, is going to be personal, uh, but uh, outside of a community relationship with others. Uh, Pastor Vance Pittman has done a great job out at Hope Church in Las Vegas uh, his ministry and his his DNA is really built around this idea of three relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, and our relationship with the world. And you can see that in the life and ministry of Jesus, and you can see that in the, the healthy life of the local church that he uh, founded uh, there in Acts 2 and following. And so we we understand that relationships are really the core of who we are and, and what we're left here to do. And so it, loving God and saying that you love Jesus, yet living isolated from a local uh, church or local church family is really 
uh, a difficult way to go. And it's um, not only unbiblical, it's super unhealthy. I, I don't know if that's a, a good phrase. It's just really unhealthy personally to try to go it alone. Uh, islands really don't survive very well. Mm. Okay, so Daryl, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, um, let's talk about something then here that's a little bit counterintuitive. And that is that local churches need to be planting new local churches. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I think that when we have this survival mentality, we don't have the thriving mentality and we're not um, actively planting new congregations, which is precisely what we need to be doing um, in order that, you know, the church can be who she's called to be in the world. So more next with Pastor Daryl Crouch. You can find everything we're talking about today at crosstide.org. We'll be right back. I am continuing my conversation with Pastor Daryl Crouch. You can follow him on Twitter at Daryl Crouch. You can also find everything we're talking about today at his blog site, which is crosstide.org. All right, Daryl, it seems entirely counterintuitive to suggest that um, a church, a local church that wants to see itself revitalized and its ministry expanded would do so by planting a new church. But talk about that. Sure. I think it's really easy, and you use this phrase earlier that uh, survival mode. Sometimes churches find ourselves, uh, because it is hard work, we find ourselves circling up and, and just trying to survive rather than uh, keeping the mission of Jesus in the in the front of what we do week in and week out. And so uh, churches uh, plant churches. That's just uh, the way God designed it. That's the New Testament model that churches plant churches. We're here a half a world away from uh, Jerusalem uh, because somebody uh, shared the gospel and planted churches that would multiply. And here we are 2,000 years later and a half a world away because somebody prioritized that. My church was founded by eight people in 1900, sent out by another very small church at that time. And so we're, we, we think there's a responsibility that we have. We also know, Carmen, just the, the math um, requires it. Uh, the population is growing. The cities are growing. Our uh, gospel impact is shrinking. The footprint that we have in our cities is shrinking. And so uh, our goal is not simply to build mega churches or big churches. Our our goal is to see our cities transformed and, and really uh, hearts turn back to Jesus. And so uh, we want to move the needle in our cities. And to do that, we must plant uh, churches that are healthy and vibrant. And, uh, and replant ones that have lost their sense of purpose and, and meaning and lost their vitality. And so uh, I think uh, every healthy church will seek out uh, ways to uh, plant or replant uh, other churches in order to reach people that would uh, never come to your church. Um, and in, in, in church work, we talk about small group ministry and multiplying small groups because small groups reach new people. It's the same principle in terms of church planting and replanting. Uh, some folks will, will go to your church. They'll never come to my church. And it's a personality thing. It's a geographic thing, whatever it may be, uh, a relational uh, connection there. So uh, we want to do all that we can uh, to reach our communities for Christ. And we believe that the biblical model of doing that is planting churches that plant churches. I remember having a conversation with um, w- with a gentleman as he was aging and literally, he had grown. He had grown up in a church that was just far more liturgical than the one that he and I were in at the time. And I just remember sitting with him over coffee, and he's just he's weeping because he he very much wanted to return 
to a church that had that rhythm of weekly communion because it had meant so much to him early in his life. And it was just, he was just at a time in his life when he just wanted that again. And yet he had this overwhelming sense of like guilt that he would be quote unquote leaving the church if he left the congregation that he and I were both in at the time to, to, you know, go, I don't know, it might've been six blocks away to this church where the rhythm of the way they worshiped was going to just really meet this deep spiritual need that he was having at the time. And I and I just said, you know, it's all one church. It's You're yeah. not leaving the church if you leave one local expression of it and go to another. I mean, as long as we're talking here about, you know, Bible, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, you know, a place where you're not only going to be rightly fed, but where you're going to have the opportunity to rightly serve. I mean, I just—so I, I think that I appreciate, Daryl, that— um, you have that heart. You work collaborative, collaboratively with other pastors and Christians across your community and city. And one of the things I hear you saying is um, is that you know no local congregation is is itself the whole the whole thing. <laughs> like right, Abs- we're all pieces absolutely. of a whole. No, absolutely. I think there was a day, maybe even in my lifetime, that that a pastor would say, "Hey, we're the best church in town. You know, come to our church. We're the best church in town." And uh, we, you know, we all like the idea of that, but there's really, that's really not the, the, the measuring rod. It never was, and it certainly isn't now. Uh, we, we need each other. We need healthy, reproducing churches. And our, as a church pastor and as leaders in churches, we, we need to have a mentality of sending as much as we have a mentality of gathering. Uh, we, we tend to measure our success based on how many people attend on a Sunday and how many people. Um, do the things that our programming asks them to do, uh, when in reality, the, the, the better measure, I think, is how many are we sending? How many are we raising up to help replant or revitalize or plant new churches, uh, start new groups? Um, we love one another, and we should be building biblical community, as we've already talked about. But those relationships should bear fruit in multiplication. And so we should live with open hands. And uh, I tell folks when they come to our membership uh, class and begin to think about what it means to be a part of our local church, that uh, we have every intention of sending them away, or at least sending their children away. And uh, some of them have moved to town to be near their grandchildren. And I I tell them, listen, we, we appreciate that, we understand that, but we're trying to raise up a generation of Jesus followers, world changers, who will be sent to the ends of the earth. And so... Uh, your grandkids may be challenged, will be challenged, and may respond to that call to go to the ends of the earth. And so we're anticipating that, and we want to position ourselves that way. It is hard, Carmen, to do that because institutionally we we do have responsibilities and obligations, uh, bills to pay, and, and we, we want to have a great impact in our communities as well. So there's always a tension there, and it's a dynamic tension. But I think when our heart is for the world, we'll figure out a way. Uh, that that story uh, reminds me of uh, of a friend. His name's John Boone, and he's an old guy now. Um, and I just remember when his granddaughter—this has been ten years ago—but his granddaughter, you know, just felt this passionate call to go to Central America. She's still there. Like that's where she lives. That's where she serves. Yeah. That's where she's raising her family, um, because that's where God called her. And he was a little, you know, dismayed. And you know, not, I'm like, John, this is who you raised. This is. This is what you, this is who you are as a gospel-sending Christian. And um, it kind of brightened his uh, his approach to the whole thing, like, oh, yeah, this is what I believe. And um, I do want my the, my legacy to be of a sent people. It, it's, Absolutely. Um, it's, it's great. Daryl, um, I just love talking with you. Thank you so much. Um, I want to point people to a third piece at crosstide.org. 
And it's why Christian higher ed matters. Um, I appreciated reading that as well. So uh, thank you, my brother and my friend. We'll talk next time. Thanks so much, Carmen. We'll be right back. Okay, so you and I are probably both responding, at least at some level, to kind of the screaming headlines of the day. One of those is about impeachment. And so uh, I'm going to talk with Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University. Just a quick, we're going to briefly touch on that. But then we're going to pivot to um, a, a birth control conscience case that the Supreme Court of the United States has taken up. And I want us to um, understand what's going on there, because I think that's a conversation that's going to be unfolding in the culture um, for a very long time, right? We are going to continue having a conversation about human life. What is human? When does it begin? Um, what is our responsibility to those who are uh, yet to be born? Um, and then what is our responsibility? And this gets a little you know, off of the subject that I'm going to talk with Hunter about, but one that really is sort of uh, has come up in lots of conversations I've had recently Um, You know, there's just a lot of women who have had abortions over the course of their life. And so how are we as as fellow believers um, addressing that? How are we um, helping women recover from abortions, even abortions that they had 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago? Um, And so that's a conversation that if you've got insight and input into, I'd love to hear from you. You can always text me. At 877-933-2484. You can also email me, Carmen, at MyFaithRadio.com. That's a conversation that I I want to be getting into in the coming weeks and months. Um, If there's a ministry that you're aware of to post-abortive women, um, particularly, you know, those, again, whose abortions are now really far in the past, um, but it's it's a living grief for them even today. I'd love to hear from you. So you can email me, Carmen, at MyFaithRadio.com, or you can always text me, 877-933-2484. Again, up next, uh, Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University uh, on a range of topics and concerns today, uh, leading off with impeachment. We'll be right back. Okay, so I'm wondering what you're doing in the middle of the summer. If you don't yet have a plan for July 24th and 25th, um, join us at the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference. It's a couple of days where you can explore all of those things that you've always thought to yourself would make a good book, but you didn't really know how to make a book, like how to get it out of your head and out of your heart and onto the onto the page and then into, public, in, into publication. So uh, we want to invite you to join us at the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference July 24th and 25th. There are early bird discounts that end um, at the end of January. So go ahead and visit us at NorthwesternChristianWritersConference.com. Register and get 20% off during the month of January. We'll see you then. We'll be right back. I've met parents who post a list of rules on the fridge and expect kids to fall in line. But more often than not, that piece of paper does nothing more than annoy and embarrass the kids. And frankly, it doesn't work. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. In the teen years, nothing's more important than developing relationships between parents and kids because rules without a relationship causes rebellion. So here's what I suggest. Take time to get with your teen over breakfast or dinner or coffee and do it every week. 
you'll find this weekly get-together will be a place to share your own stories, even a place where your teen will talk about deeper concerns. You'll be surprised how rules take care of themselves once there's a relationship. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. mean that Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University is back in the house. Welcome back, sir. Hi there. Happy to be with you. Well, thank you. All right. So um, I felt like yesterday, which I didn't watch the I, I didn't watch the impeachment proceedings. I did listen to a portion of it. And the portion to which I listened was um, the, I don't know, roughly hour that Adam Schiff um, made a presentation and then I was very surprised at how brief and seemingly unfocused um, the the president's lawyers were in, um, you know, following Adam Schiff's presentation. And so let me just tell you that that's that's as much as I got yesterday in terms of, you know, the the direct content. I've obviously, you know, know what some people have commented about it. But I'm interested in your take. What What's your perception of what happened yesterday and then what we can expect going forward? Well, I think that your read on it is probably pretty fair. Uh, I think that the most important thing that there's there's really two important things that came out of yesterday. Um, first is, is that each side will have three days to present their case. So three days, eight hours each to present their case. Um, that will be interesting. I, you know, I, th- I think that from the <clears throat> from the Democrat side, we we can imagine we already know what that will be because they um, they presented their case pretty thoroughly in the House. Um, in terms of the in terms of uh, Donald Trump, it will be interesting to see what his team puts on over a course of three days. Will they use the whole three days? You know, there was there was an effort to to try to dismiss this thing, although that's been abandoned. Um, so that will be that will be interesting, right? You know, as you pointed out, if if they're sort of unfocused on this uh, opening day, it makes you wonder what things will be like on the on the three days uh, in which they can present evidence and argue with what's been presented. Um, and then after that three days, then uh, there will be a vote on whether to subpoena witnesses. Uh, so that could be interesting as well. Um, the Democrats seem to be putting a lot of uh, credence in the idea that John Bolton could testify and, and create big problems for uh, the president. I'm a lot more skeptical about that. Uh, not not that I know what John Bolton has seen or heard, uh, but I just I don't see him as somebody who would like to be kind of a savior for the Democrats in this cause. Uh, he's been bitterly opposed for much of the past 20 years by Democrats and things that he wanted to do, and I. You know, I just I have real doubts that he's dying to come in and kind of be the the white knight for them on this Trump impeachment. 
Okay, so Hunter, I feel confident that um, you and I are going to have opportunity to talk about this particular topic again. I don't imagine this is going to be resolved by the next time we have the opportunity to talk. So I'm going to pivot today um, to another topic, and that is this uh, birth control conscience case that the Supreme Court is taking up. Can you brief us in on that? Yeah, well, um, when Barack Obama was president, in the wake of the passage of the Affordable Care Act, the Health and Human Services Department put put down a mandate. So this was not this was not the law itself. This was the agency making a regulation, um, and they they basically required employers to provide contraceptive and abortifacient coverage um, for employees. Many, many Christian organizations objected. Uh, Two of the different Christian universities I have worked at joined the lawsuit. Um, And, uh, you know, also Little Sisters of the Poor, um, Hobby Lobby, and and others. And uh, so. And just to remind people, let me just remind people Little Sisters of the Poor is a group of Catholic nuns. And so these are women who don't need some sort of external form of birth control or abortion. Okay. Just, just to be clear. Who that's right. About. Yes, yeah. that's right. Uh, you know, and with, with universities like the ones that I've worked at, the, the concern was less over the contraceptives and more the abortifacient question. Um, but in any case, uh, because of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, these groups and Hobby Lobby were able to prevail Hobby Lobby was the most controversial part of it because they are uh, they are not a religious organization, um, but they were appealing under the under the heading of religious liberty. But they did prevail. So since then, uh, the Trump administration has sought to allow um, essentially any uh, any company to uh, to make these claims. Um, just claims of conscience. It doesn't even have to be religious liberty, you know, whatever, uh, not to provide contraceptive and abortifacient coverage. And that's what this case is about. Now, uh, you know, I think that what I would have done if I were the Trump administration is that they they control the Department of Health and Human Services right now. Uh, and they simply could have just reversed the mandate. That would be a lot simpler and there'd be no constitutional question. But they've they've chosen to do what they've chosen to do. So when when we talk about um, how not just how laws are changed, but how um, the effect of those laws works its way out through institutional um, the institutional arms of government. So in this case, HHS, uh, I, I feel like one of the motivations to try to go beyond simply a rule change at the administrative level is that the next administration could simply reverse that again. And so, um, you know, maybe the calculus is there's, we are currently at a point in time where there's the possibility of getting a real review of the underlying issue, which is whether or not abortion is something that we as a country want to be, you know, actively engaged in. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um but I think that I think that what's likely to happen, you know, my my dream scenario is is that the uh, that somebody presents a challenge that the unborn child um, 
is a person under the mm-hmm. 14th Amendment. And if you if you successfully establish that, which I honestly think you could establish, um, then that would be the end of uh, of at least elective abortion in the United States. What is much more likely to happen is that there will be a series of states <clears throat> kind of kind of nipping away right at at abortion, you know, through various regulations. And the Supreme Court will be faced one by one to kind of deal with these regulations. And, and ultimately, you know, you could get to the point where uh, abortion is fairly difficult to obtain. Uh, or you could get to the point where the court makes it clear that different states – we could return to the previous regime where different states could outlaw abortion. That's, that's the most likely scenario. But in the interim, I think that what will happen is – is that you will see states just kind of cutting back, cutting back, cutting back, and that and that's what's been going on for uh, for several years now. Um, there are a number of states in the U.S. where um, abortion has become fairly rare uh, compared to the early days of Roe v. Wade. All right. If you're listening to us right now, uh, I'm Carmen LeBurge. I'm talking with Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University. We're talking about a range of topics, and we're about to pivot to something completely different after the break. Uh, We're going to talk about the fact that as schools are limiting the use of cell phones and smartphones um, by students during during the hours of school, schools are then now having to deal with something called device separation anxiety. So we're going to talk about some of the ways that schools are dealing with that. Um, and uh, Hunter's engaged in not just Christian higher ed, but in conversations about education. And so I thought it would be uh, fun to have him reflect on this. So we're going to talk about students. We're going to talk about access to phones during school hours. And we're going to talk about the impact that um, that then schools have to deal with when they take those phones away or limit their use. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, returning to my conversation with Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University. Um, Hunter, remind people uh, where they can most easily find you. What's your preferred social media engagement place? Uh, I just I do a lot on Facebook and Twitter. Um, on, and on Twitter, you can just easily find me. I'm at Hunter Baker. I think I think I'm the oldest of the Hunter Bakers, and I was the first one to grab the grab the social media handles. So you're actually Hunter Baker tweeting at Hunter Baker, which is good. Exactly. Yeah, that's, exactly. that's not that's not hard to find. Okay, so um, you teach. You are engaged with students. Paul Perot actually. Yeah. Um, Paul, my producer here during the break, um, noted that the senators are currently experiencing what these students are experiencing because the senators during uh, during this impeachment hearing are not allowed to use their. Um, cellular devices. So they are maybe suffering this device separation anxiety that students are experiencing. Talk about the impact of uh, of smartphones in the classroom just as an educator, and then talk about you know institutionally how you guys have responded to that. And then let's reflect on this story we've both read about how schools are having to deal with device separation anxiety because they're restricting phone use by students. Yeah, it's absolutely a nightmare. Um, when when phones first became a big thing, I originally tried to tried to tell students, you know, just keep your, you know, you you can bring your phone, but don't look at it. Um, 
I'll take off points if I see you looking at your phone or whatever else. And uh, eventually, I basically just said, don't don't bring a laptop. Don't bring a phone. I don't want to see it at all. Um, and that's that's been my policy. And I, I actually think that the students appreciate it, generally speaking, uh, because there is there's much less distraction in my classroom. I I remember being in the back of a colleague's classroom and uh, because I was observing his class and the amount of distraction and paying attention to something other than the professor, whether that be a phone or a laptop or whatever, was absolutely astonishing. Um, and of course, you know, it, and they can distract you. A, you feel offended that they're looking at a phone uh, and B, you feel further offended at the way they try to hide it from you, and they think you're naive enough not to see it. Uh, it's extremely disturbing to me as a professor to see students kind of, kind of uh, trying to look or interact with something other than what I've got going on. You know, it's like I, I tell them it's like I've gone to all this effort to prepare this particular uh, lesson and this talk. And I need you to be engaged. I mean, that's that's why we're here. Uh, and the phone just kind of has trained everybody to seek a little, just a little hit of distraction over and over again. Uh, I was just thinking the other day about how often I pick up the phone to check the weather or something like that. And then I, when I put the phone back, I realized I didn't even check the weather. Right. Mm. I looked at Facebook. I looked at Twitter. Uh, I looked at email. You know, I may have watched a video and I didn't even do the thing that I intended to do. Uh, as far as how schools are dealing with it, I understand that uh, I understand that many schools are buying these pouches that, you know, students can lock their phone into. And, <laughs> you know, I can't imagine uh, what we're spending on this kind of stuff. Uh, I have to deal with it with my own children and, um, you know, uh, one of my kids I've asked to stop taking the phone to school, even though it's useful for us to communicate, uh, with him because I think it's distracting him. Um, you know, and I think it's just going to get worse over time. Eventually people are going to have Google class kind of Google glass came and went, uh, and sort of failed, but I think that was just too early. Eventually kids are going to have it in their glasses. Yeah, and then it's going to be much uh, more difficult to um, to monitor. Um, you know, it, back in the day, passing notes was the challenge, right? I was trying to obscure yeah. the passing of a note to a friend, and now, you know, the cyberbullying that takes place during class because of the access to phones is really significant, and it's hard for hard for educators to um, know that it's happening. And yet, what a what an incredible distraction to the students. Hey, research is actually on your side, um, and so. Um, Harvard has apparently like acknowledged that low tech note taking is produces better outcome, better student outcomes in terms of learning. Um, so I just think that, you know, when we talk about uh, like legitimate reasons to encourage people to take notes on a pad of paper with a pen or a pencil yeah. versus even, you know, the excuse that we might have, which is that I need my laptop or my tablet or my phone because that's where I'm taking my notes. Um, apparently, we learn more when we take notes literally the old-fashioned way. So there you go. It's, it, is, it is totally obvious to me. I mean, in fact, I noticed recently I found myself kind of feeling bored 
during sermons, and I, you know, I felt like I was disengaged. And I thought, I thought to myself, you know what I really need to do? I need to do like a number of people in church faithfully do, and that is take notes. to really dedicate myself to taking notes. Yeah, I'm telling you what, I'm and the so, most faithful note taker in in worship you've ever seen. I have great notes, and it really helps. Yeah, it does. Oh my gosh, Absolutely. you know, I'm, I I realized I'm taking the notes. I'm like, I'm not bored. I'm following this. I'm getting everything that the pastor has for me instead of letting myself kind of sit back in a passive posture and letting my mind wander. That's right. Actively engaged. All right. Hey, you, you and I have to leave it there, sir. Um, thank you so much. As always, that's Dr. Hunter Baker. Best place to find him on Twitter. He is Hunter Baker, and he tweets at Hunter Baker. We'll be right back. Okay, we've covered a lot of territory um, this morning, but I I sort of love where we landed, which is note-taking on sermons. And so let me encourage you to, um, uh, if if this is not a practice of yours, to start, like, actually taking notes um, during the sermon. And so... uh, Get a get a notebook. There's nothing fancy here, right? You can write in the bulletin, but if you're like me, that's just not enough space. So get a journal, get a notebook, um, get a pad of paper, and actually this Sunday, take some notes during the sermon uh, and, and see how that helps you not only remain engaged in terms of the Word, but how it allows God uh, a way into the conversation um, because you may write things down that the pastor didn't actually say, but that God spoke to your heart um, while while the text of, of Scripture was being unpacked. So take some notes this Sunday and see how that works for you. All right, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. we got another hour up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.